0: You're listening to Robert Wright's Non Zero Podcast.
1: Hello, this is Bob, and I wanted to first thank you for listening to the Non Zero Podcast, and second, encourage you to, as they say, rate and review us since we need all the support we can get in the increasingly competitive podcast world. And speaking of support, the third thing I wanted to do is say that one way some people support us is by becoming paid subscribers to the non zero newsletter, which gets them, in addition to all the paywalled print content at nonzero, a special nonzero podcast feed that has everything the public nonzero podcast feed has plus the parrot room my weekly after-hours conversation with longtime frenemy Mickey Kaus, which Mickey and I tape right after our public Friday podcast, and in which we sometimes say things we probably wouldn't say in the public podcast, and in some cases probably shouldn't say even in the parrot. Now, that special non-zero podcast feed will also get you early access to a lot of the conversations I have with various other people, the conversations that go public on Tuesday. And it will get you various other things, like audio versions of some of my newsletter essays, and perhaps the occasional impromptu monologue. So I encourage you to head over to nonzero.substack.com and join the ranks of hardcore nonzero readers and listeners. And again, thanks for listening. Hi, Nikita. Hey, Bob. How are you doing? Doing okay. How are you? Can't complain. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You, as you know, are Nikita Petrov, uh, creative director for The Glenn Show, whose past is intertwined with the past of this podcast in ways I won't get into much. Except to say that you used to work for the Non-Zero Foundation, which uh, puts out this podcast, used to put out The Glenn Show. Um, But more to the point, you are Russian. Uh, You are in Armenia, where you went uh, right after the invasion. You didn't wait for the uh, mobilization some months later, which led to a second wave of Russians going Mm -hmm. to Armenia. I wanted to talk with you about uh, various things related to Russia. And or the war. Um, including, you know, how are things in our media? There's a whole Russian diaspora there now, I guess, as a result of the war. Uh, how are you being received and uh so on? Um, what's your take on things in Russia, your sense of uh what's going on there? I also wanted to discuss uh, a podcast uh I just aired that uh that I know you've uh listened to or watched uh with Ivan Kachanovsky, a uh a uh, canadian political scientist from ukraine in some ways a, a controversial podcast wanted to get your take on it um and also i mean maybe uh we could talk a little about the uh the tensions that armenia is involved in with azerbaijan not inconceivable that that could lead to war and i guess if you use your imagination you can uh you can think of ways that, that could interact with the russian war in uh unfortunately synergistic ways i'm really not sure i, I but but anyway uh welcome how are you doing
0: i'm doing okay doing okay
1: yeah, yeah. actually I'm, come to think of it i just asked you that and you're doing okay then well anyway i'm glad to glad to hear that your situation hasn't deteriorated uh so how uh are you uh are you being well received in armenia i mean sometimes uh you know there, there's uh that doesn't happen there isn't a, a welcome reception when a country receives a big influx of people from
0: another yeah, country. Yeah, I hear there are some of that in Georgia, though I haven't been there myself, and reports vary. But Armenia has been extremely welcoming. Um, they Armenians seem to like Russians for whatever reason. I guess there are a lot of ties to the country economic, and people travel go back and forth, and uh, mm. there are a lot of Armenians. Ar-
1: Armenia was also. part of the Soviet Union, right?
0: Sure. No, not every country that used to be a part of the Soviet Union has a good relationship with Russia. Yeah,
1: I'm told. I'm told that some don't now.
0: Uh, but uh-huh. yeah, Armenians uh, have been extremely nice. In uh, you know, in the early months, I would have a conversation with somebody in Russia with my mother or somebody, and they would worry, you know, how people treat me there. And my answer was much better than Russians used to treat me back in Russia. <laughs> Uh,
1: well, may- maybe that has to do with where you fit into the Russian social ecosystem, though, right? You were
0: no, no, I'm talking about day to day, you know, talking to a lady at the grocery store, passerby. Uh, here I walk the dog every time, there are at least a few people who will stop and pet the dog and ask me how I'm doing, and so forth. I think it's partly just like differences between nations like armenians seems to be seem to be uh nicer people like (laughs) you know maybe this is superficial like you know when i lived in in america at some point the hi how are you i'm fine everybody's great and everybody's asking how are you it's become a little tiresome because there was a little sense of fakeness to it like everybody in
1: america (laughs) nikita We're a very sincere people and I wish you all the best. And I mean that. (laughs)
0: Uh, But yeah, Armenians, Armenians are very, very welcoming. And, uh, um, you know, I couldn't, couldn't ask for more. It's been almost a year. There was one time. Well, there were two times when I got a negative reaction and, and that's a, a drop in a, in an ocean of positive reactions.
1: Do you think the people who stop and pet your dog can tell you're Russian and they're trying to be welcoming? Or is this just a lot of dog petting in Armenia?
0: The dog part is definitely driven by the love for dogs.
1: Really? It's really a dog. Pr- I should go there. I should I should take my dogs there.
0: It's it's funny. They have a lot of in, in Yerevandra a lot of stray dogs. Um and they're very well socialized and well fed, and they're they're mm. just fine, everybody's petting them. But then the kind of other side of the coin is every once like my dog is this small, cute, harmless thing that it, it it's bizarre to me that anybody could see him as threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, but every once in a while there's a person who like runs away. And my guess is these trays haven't always been well fed because Armenia has gone through some very very dark times in the 90s, and I think some people might have had bad experiences with like angry, hungry, violent trays, mm-hmm. and, Uh you know internalized the the fear. But mostly, yeah, these these trays. I mean, there's there should be. I, I and my my wife is uh, like animal. Uh, she works at a charity foundation taking care of dogs and cats and whatnot. Mm. And I keep telling her she should just start like a video blog with these trays because there are a lot of them and they're cute and they're uh, interesting and they're, they want you to pet them and hang out. She always brings food and oftentimes the dog is not really interested. She's like, mm-hmm. just pet me. I'm, I'm well fed. I'm fine. Just let's hang out.
1: I'd watch, I'd watch her show if she started one. (laughs) So she, uh, so what's your, uh, do you have a take on things in Russia? You must, I gather a number of your friends have, uh, have left Russia. That's the kind of people you hung out with, but you. Most of them. Yeah. The vast majority. Most of them. But you must, uh, you have have relatives there, uh, including, I think a brother and, um, he, brother, oh, he left. Where, where is he
0: currently in Thailand? And uh, I don't know who he's, where he's gonna go after.
1: Uh huh. Your mother is there.
0: My mother is there, and I have a couple of friends. And you know, my uh, wife's parents, her grandmother is in Ukraine, uh, in Dnipropetrovsk. And um, yeah, so there are some connections both to Russia and Ukraine. But now,
1: your mother is your mother from Ukraine?
0: Originally, yeah, she's from a village uh near Vinitsa. But she left she, she moved to Russia I don't actually know when, but probably she was in her twenties or something. And she was in Kazakhstan before then. She she traveled. Okay.
1: So what do you have a sense for things in Russia? I mean like I read uh a public well let me first ask the question in an open-ended way. What's your what's your take on the uh, things in Russia, how how the war is being received or whatever. Anything you wanna say?
0: Pretty horrible what's happening in Russia. Um
1: inside you mean in Russia, in, in
0: well yeah, I mean the the war immediately after the beginning of the war there was also a crackdown in Russia that's continuing. Uh you know, people can go to jail for calling a war a war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people have gone to jail for that, and um uh, all media independent media has been banned, and the rhetoric has been like it it was pretty over the edge to begin with and and it's been getting steadily worse it's you know let's turn America into nuclear dust and whatnot who and who
1: is saying things like that? I'd like to have a word with him.
0: I think that phrase is. From Kisilov, who's one of the main propagandists on t v mm-hmm. uh, but but sentiments similar to that have been expressed by numerous people, media personalities and politicians yeah
1: um and then even uh some government people former uh former oh, president, Med- was,
0: has- is off the rails like we haven't seen him like that uh before the war he was this kind of, you know, people made fun of him, and 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 he just slept through meetings, and now he has a Telegram channel, and and it, it the the theory that uh, is expe- ac- accepted most wildly is his drinking a lot, because it it reads like he's just at home at night, not sober, just talking shit like like really just the language he uses is is what a a low-level thug on the street Mm -hmm. it's kind
1: of the the rudy giuliani of russia uh well you don't you may not get that reference anyway let me ask a question though he isn't he still does he still have some position in government like assistant head of national security something i mean and, and in which case i would think He would only say he threatened nuclear war with Putin's authorization. Like I had thought Putin wanted to send a message, but not be the one sending it or something. But you think there's just not that degree of control?
0: I mean, I can only guess. And my guess is there is a game being played by people around Putin. You know, you need to show loyalty and you need to show that you're all, uh, you know, all in. Uh I think Medvedev is trying to present himself as, like, completely loyal, and I'm going to go to the extent that I need to go uh, in this rhetoric. And I think Mm -hmm. he's overdoing it a little. Mm -hmm. So, things are
1: more repressive there than before. Now, the, the, the public opinion polls I read, and there's apparently one poll that's relatively credible, that's that's not by the government, and in fact, seems to be conducted by some guy who doesn't like the government. I forget the name of it. Uh, according to that, um, on the one hand, most Russians say they support the war. On the other hand, when they, when they ask, uh, do you favor continuing the war or uh, moving to peace negotiations, and they make it sound kind of binary, like you wouldn't, you know, it's one or the other. Hmm. Most people say peace negotiations. And I've also heard that uh, you're getting a higher and higher number for people uh, declining to reply at all, which, of course, could suggest that they're really not at all on board with this, but they don't want to say it. Um, Do you have any sense for the degree of support for Putin for the for the war, whether one or both are declining or anything?
0: So on the polls, uh, it, it's an important thing you mentioned about people who decline to answer the poll. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember, I don't know how it is now, but I remember a few months ago, I, was, I think it was before the mobilization, um, uh, I listened to an interview with this uh, woman, Katerina Schulman, who's kind of a sociologist, and, and she was asked about these polls. And she said, that number of people who decline to answer has always been high, but nowadays there are polls were ninety-seven percent decline. So you—oh, really, you're kidding! You really can't. I don't know, you know, what exact poll she was talking about, and uh, it, it's probably not the one you mean. But uh, I think that's an important part.
1: Well, that would seem to nullify all, all findings. I mean, come on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I don't, and and even without that, I don't know. I, I don't know how you can trust polls from Russia who's conducting mm-hmm. them. Uh, How people respond, if they choose to respond, I I wouldn't take that as honest expression of their views. It's more a loyalty test. Like, are you Mm -hmm. willing to say into this microphone or whatever, was this person writing things down? Um, Who would, in, in a country where you can go to jail for expressing their own opinion, who would just openly talk about their thoughts? Unless they happen to align with the government policy.
1: So, do you have a way of asses- of assessing the state of opinion yourself? I mean, does your mother say things, or
0: yeah, it's 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 anecdotal. It's like a friend of a friend said this, uh, mm-hmm. or, or or the immediate circle, or or social media. Um, I think there has been a change since mobilization, because suddenly the war became more immediate to Russians. Right, it's one thing to talk about this thing happening over there. It's another when you or your son or your husband might go there. Um, and they think the there's less support now. And and it's you know, partly rooted in fear for your own safety. So it's you know, it's not a oh, I think this war is unjust now. It's yeah. more I don't want to die. Um,
1: Well, and the two intertwine. I mean, you know, in, in in the V with the Vietnam war, the protesters said very high minded things on the other hand, you know, about uh, justice and exploitation and, and, or whatever they, whatever they said. But on the other hand, the protest didn't gather much momentum until Mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, you know, Americans started coming back in, in body bags. And, there was a draft. Everyone was vulnerable in principle, although there was a loophole for basically affluent people who gets in their kids to college and get a deferment. Um, so anyway, uh, so do you have a view on, I mean, you know, the kind of speculation you get here in America is about, well, could the Putin regime ultimately fall? Is there, you know, uh, if the war heads south in, in a big way? And becomes an obvious debacle, and they wind up with the not even having gained any territory and so on. Um, do you have any sense for that, for how fluid things are?
0: I think they can be, but... I mean, can Putin's regime fall? How would that happen? There might be a coup. Mm-hmm. Um and in that scenario who would organize such a coup and i'm not seeing people around him who would be able to who have the, uh whatever it takes courage mm-hmm. decisiveness or whatever i i mean there there might be these people i i just don't know um the there's been a rise uh, we've talked i think last time we talked uh we mentioned this guy prigozhin who's the mm-hmm. Uh, owner of the Wagner group, the mercenary group. Mm-hmm. He used to be, like it was recently, um, he had a court case before the war um, against the uh, head of the Echo of Moscow radio station, which has been banned since the beginning of the war. And mm-hmm. the court case was the guy alleged that this Prigozhin person is the head of the Wagner group. And at the time, he's like, "This is libel, and I'm going to take you to court." and he won." And now he's very openly the head of the Wagner Chevaka Group, and he's um, he becoming like a, a political figure. He makes pronouncements, he mm-hmm. criticizes people, he seems to want more power. He's uh, kind of he's criticizing the, the actual Ministry of Defense uh from the position of like my people are fighting there and doing better job than you fuckers and mm-hmm. uh and that's also like like what he's doing is illegal like the reason he originally filed that court case um there's a there's a, a whatever it's called article of the criminal code for exactly the thing he's doing mhm um and now he's like open about it. Like, I'm doing this thing and it's good. And uh, he has the, um, he goes to prisons and enlists people there to fight in this war. And uh, there's a video of, I uh, guess they got this guy who was in, um, he ended up in, uh, uh, what do you call it? He was captured by the Ukrainians. By forces. Ukraine. And, yeah. the, and then
1: yeah. returned. The Ukrainians returned him in a, in a swap. I think kind of knowing they were sending him to his death, probably right, because he was a he was an avowed deserter. I mean, he he, uh, as I understand it, this is the guy that they then killed with a sledgehammer and videotaped it or something. I mean, this is like ISIS level stuff. Yeah, and Prigozhin was uh, that was a, that was he okayed that, or or if he, if not, you know, thought it up, right? That whole
0: yeah, and he later presented. There is this guy Milonov, who is one of the more um. I don't know what what word to he use. Uh, he's a he's in the doom, I think, and he's um, he's like the anti-gay guy, and he's sort of a, a caricature of a person. And he <laughs> uh, he got a present from Prigozhin. He got a sledgehammer, like the one that they smashed this guy's skull with.
1: Wait, that was a threat or an honor? What? What? what, what? Meaning?
0: Given that he posed with a sledgehammer sledgehammer smiling, I take it it was not a threat. Mm -hmm. Um, But like it's now in the open. It's it's this thing that they they're proud of.
1: This is this is interesting because I think my sense is and, and 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 this surprises some people. But my sense is that in the past, Putin actually had taken pains to always be on the right side of the letter of the law. In other words, there there was an emphasis. Like even this whole business of uh, defining this as a special military operation and not a war, that had implications for what he could and couldn't do. And, and, uh, And I think traditionally, you know, some people are like, well, wait a second, isn't he just like this dictator who can do whatever he wants? And like, well, maybe in some sense, but for whatever reason, my sense is that traditionally, and you know Putin has like a law degree I think but but traditionally they they've gone through the motions of complying with the law and if he wants to become ruler for life he has to change the constitution of the laws and so on it sounds to me like that is starting to to break down I mean I mean just the very fact that they're now saying openly the Wagner group mm-hmm. is yeah it's this mercenary thing and that's OK, even though you're saying that itself is illegal, not to mention this business of, of OK, we do videos of sledgehammering people to death. And, uh, you know, and then it becomes kind of a joke uh, it, it is. I mean, it would surprise some people to, 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 to hear that you could even say the rule of law in Russia is breaking down because they wouldn't think that the rule of law could have been a thing in the first place. But my sense is that there's a sense in which it was.
0: I think it's not and, so much the rule of law as the rhetoric regarding the rule of law. Mm-hmm. So right, they used to go through more rituals, and uh, and Putin's rhetoric used to be more. You know, he would he would like to be perceived as a uh, legal mind, and uh, you know, everybody's every, everything needs to be up to up to snuff. There's this montage uh, a year or a couple years ago they made uh, Medusa is one of those other independent media outlets that was banned, and they made this collage of uh, montage of, of Putin saying the phrase, something like, it has to be within the bounds of the law. And it's just his favorite phrase. He would mm-hmm. use it in, in every possible scenario. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really mean anything. It is like, well, you, you know, there, there was this protest in Moscow when people were beaten and detained, even though the constitution allows for free expression of and, and gathering of, uh, of people. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Well, yes, the constitution does allow that, but it needs to stay within the bounds of the law." And there's no explanation as to what exactly was out of bounds. Um, but
1: but when he decided he wanted to rule for like forever or whatever, didn't he actually make some change, get some change moved through Parliament? He went through those motions, right? Sure. Didn't he? Do- sure. And and now he's got an election nominally coming up. If he mm-hmm. doesn't somehow find a way to cancel it in i think two years right now is your sense that
0: before yeah
1: is your sense that the election i mean granted he pulls all this stuff to influence the outcome including uh you know a lot of control of the media and so on but is your sense that that as uh, the way the institutions have operated is that the votes are counted more or less accurately and that all the shenanigans come before the voting or no, do you think shen- he can just he can just control the outcome regardless?
0: The shenanigans happen all throughout the process. Okay, so you you try to uh, tweak the results at every step so that by the time you're counting, you don't need to tweak them the, the, mm-hmm. the too much. But if you have to, then you will. Um, they might throw that away by the time election runs uh, runs on and throw it away. Throw the not through really the earlier parts, maybe maybe just say the numbers. Who's going to question them? Who's going to say yeah. incorrect? Uh, if somebody does, we'll put them to jail. Into jail. Um, I think he has more of a control over the entire process now. Like if we're talking about 2012, there were a lot of observers, like these people who are who are. I was one of them. Uh, you go to the polling station to prevent. Mm -hmm. uh, shenanigans. I think those are not going to be there uh, this time around. Uh, The actual procedures carried out in schools, so it's teachers and, and, you know, the head of school who are there with the books, who are, you know, taking the, the signature and giving out the ballot and count the results. Those are all government workers, and they're under pressure. Um, now in schools there are these lessons I think they're called conversations about the most important you know something like that and that's political propaganda that's why you know a lesson on why this war is a good one Mm -hmm. and so by the time 2024 rolls in um, these people would have been a part of this propaganda machine for longer than they used to be and in 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 more ways and uh and some people will be filtered out. So I don't think the you know getting the numbers right is gonna be a problem for him. That said, elections are always a pressure point and you could imagine like a mass protest movement if not for the fact that all the possible leaders of such movement are I'm in jail the country or dead or left the country or,
1: or isn't it also true that a lot of the kinds of people who would have supported the demonstrations have now left the country because of the war i That's mean you um, you participated yeah. in demonstrations in the a while ago yeah uh pro navalny protests or something i uh, i forget but
0: um pro well, navalny pro democracy against you know for pro free elections there are a lot a lot of different issues but that that aligned
1: and I would think, in the first wave of exodus right after the invasion, in particular, you lost a lot of the kinds of people who might support uh, be part of demonstrations. Uh, my sense is is your sense is that there was a difference between kind of the first the composition of the first wave and the second wave? My sense was that the second wave could would be more likely my guess was that the second wave would be more likely to include people who really weren't that politically motivated per se, weren't anti-war per se, just didn't want to be sent to the front, right? Uh, but does that make sense to you?
0: That's one part of it. Yeah, I think there are differences. That's one part. So there is a like larger portion of people in the second wave who would stay if not for personal risks. Mm-hmm. Uh But then the other thing is um, different people have different thresholds for how prepared they need to be to pick up their stuff and leave. Uh, Like for me, it was like my job is with Americans. I actually, in order to continue receiving my salary, I had to leave because I wasn't able to uh, get U.S. dollars into Mm -hmm. my bank account anymore. Uh, But if you have like a guy, uh, a friend of my wife uh, stayed with us here for maybe a month, and he left after the mobilization. And uh, he planned to stay here, and he couldn't figure out uh, work here. And uh, that was one of the reasons he came back. He wants to leave again, but uh, he needs to save money. He needs to figure out how to feed himself if he leaves. Um, and so he was like against the war from from the beginning, but he's still in Russia because it's just not so easy to uh, pick everything up and go to a country Mm -hmm. where you have no connections and you have no job prospects and whatnot. And um, so there's that, that's another metric, another factor for, for how long you stay or leave.
1: But I would think that the numbers that have left, I mean, you hear, you hear like, I don't know, a few hundred thousand on, and uh, that that's the kind of number i get is you know given how kind of specific the demographics involved are could could have a significant influence on russia's future i mean a lot of the a lot of tech i, I would guess the number of tech savvy people creative people you know uh you know the the kinds of you know cosmopolitan and and I'm sure Putin is is probably in some ways happy to see him go. They're, they're, they're obviously a lot more kind of pro-Western uh people, especially in that first wave, probably, Western leaning people. Um, but I I i it's it's kind of sad. I mean, it has, I think, probably implications for Russia's economic future and political future.
0: I think so. Yeah. I mean, some people left and then came back uh because they thought. They're going to be okay in Russia, and they are more. Yeah, <sighs> I'm. I'm trying to think of ways to not use loaded language, like, yeah. Karin and I, we had a, we we met with some friends, not close. That's friends,
1: your that's but, your wife.
0: Yeah, that's my wife, and it's like this: a um, woman and a man, our age more or less, maybe a little older, and they are professionals in their fields and. I don't know why the guy forgets why the guy is not concerned about his own, you know, like, mobilization whatnot. Maybe he has connections and and he's going to be protected, or I don't know. But they they do think that the regime is rotten, the entire system in Russia is rotten, and they think that the war is inexcusable and all that. But it's a different kind of... They're more detached than we are. It was a weird conversation because we would... We're like on the one hand we seem to be on the same page as to you know what the there's no there's there's no dimension of this that they support. But they're fine being in Russia and doing their thing and they're just kinda put a barrier between themselves and, and what's going on around them, and they like grow as professionals and uh, uh try to do good in their vicinity. Mm -hmm. but then you ask him like the the guy who works in in the movie industry and I asked him like okay so like one part of the reason I left is I don't understand what I can be doing in Russia that would be beneficial Uh, I I can see what I can attempt to do and then be put in jail uh, but I don't know how what do you do to improve the situation so i asked him mm-hmm. so you're, you're working in the movies what what kind of movie uh would be good for the country and and we just didn't understand one another he he started talking about like maybe a a really good movie about the second world war that's not as the ones they're making now you know completely slanted and there is just facts are are gotten wrong if you do it and i don't understand how a war movie helps Russia right now like <laughs> just just <laughs> I, I thought and I, mean, I even kind of prompted him like I thought maybe, you know, a documentary about the Stalin's purges or the nineteen nineties, the roots of this regime, or I don't know, something about uh mental health and how you shouldn't beat your children. But that's those answers didn't come to his mind. And so what I'm trying to say is there are a lot of people, I don't know how many, but from that wave that left, or people who were sort of on the fans about leaving there is a subset of them who either left and came back or never left at all but were thinking about it and then decided they're okay who just kind of narrowed their world to their immediate vicinity and they're just trying to do their thing and um and i don't know there's a, it's a different kind of person uh who's mm-hmm. also part of this dynamic
1: mm-hmm. Um. Well, it's uh it's kinda grim. Uh the uh b- by the way, what do you um what language do you speak with Armenians? Do they all speak Russian? Because as a legacy of Soviet past?
0: Almost all of them speak Russian. Uh every once in a while you meet somebody who doesn't, but they probably speak English. Mm-hmm. Uh but almost almost everybody speaks Russian. I think I'm right now it's been like long enough for some of them starting to have this attitude of like you've been here some time you should start learning the fucking letters. <laughs> There's a. Are uh, you
1: are you a, learning any Armenian?
0: I not really. I'm trying. Like I, I picked up a few phrases, and I have a, a sheet with the letters. But the alphabet is insane. It's uh, is it is it, is it uh, Cyrillic or it's or, the, it's its own thing. It's uh it's very old. It's older than the Russian alphabet. Uh, it has a lot of letters and, and some of them look the same to me and, uh, and some of them note a sound that would seem the same, like different sounds that seem the same to me. Um, but it's, you know, these are excuses. It's just really, it's, uh, there's not enough time to, to properly sit down and, and, uh, go to a class or something.
1: I'm trying to think what, uh, I wrote about this stuff a long time ago. I went to the Soviet Union in the early 90s and did a, a cover story for The Atlantic on comparative linguistics, historical linguistics, because there was this uh, school of uh, thought in the Soviet Union called Nostratics. Hmm. A, a school of linguistics. Uh, and it's interesting. It, it kind of, I think, began... Uh, with, uh, as I recall, if I've got this right, Stalin considered himself something of an amateur linguist, I think. But in any yeah. event, he wanted, I, I think, think he wanted, a lawyer. He, yeah, he considered himself a lot of things, a geneticist. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, I think he wanted to uh, bring all of the Soviet languages, give them a sense of, uh, a, you know, kind of a familial sense. And 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 uh, wanted to argue that they were all part of the same language family, that they all had some kind of common origin. And as some kind of byproduct of that, uh, you had you had wound up with a number of Russian linguists who subscribed to an even more ambitious hypothesis, which is that all the world's languages descended from a single language, which Mm. I think is likely to be the case. But historical linguists can't they they argue about whether the, there's really enough evidence uh of it and uh so that was the, that was the story but i i now cannot remember what uh like what language family armenian would be conventionally put in it's it's not indo european right like the like uh like english well english has a complicated past of its own but um it, it, it's uh it's not not indo european like most of the like the western european languages
0: yeah, I don't I, I mean don't, maybe I it, it is, I don't know. But there maybe is, it a, is the, the one unit of information that I can add here is that the guy who invented the Romanian alphabet, Mr. Op Mashtots, um, is there's a theory that he also developed an early version or something of the Georgian alphabet. I don't think that's hmm. proven, but that's uh that's an idea. Well, I- it also One of the jokes about Armenians is that they claim that everything has been invented in Armenia. (laughs) It's like uh, they're the first country to uh, adopt Christianity as the state religion in in the the world. And uh, I think there's some kind of, you know, a little bit of a beef between Georgians and Armenians that I've seen, uh, I've heard expressed. Through that lens, like uh, an old Georgian mm. man goes, I don't really like Armenians. And, and the interviewer asks why. And he's like, well, they think they invented everything. They say that the city was, fa- they're talking in Belisi in, in the capital of Georgia. Like they say that the city is founded by them. Everything is founded by Armenians. Um, and there's a little bit of that. And so maybe, I don't know about like the merits of that theory that Mashtots uh, authored the Georgian alphabet as well. But at least they're, it would suggest they're similar.
1: do the two languages seem similar do they sound obviously similar georgian and armenian or i mean i'm wondering if they're part of the. i don't know
0: they sound different to me but i don't know so uh, so are
1: you how much publicity is this uh this trouble with uh, azerbaijan getting I, i i would think a lot uh in armenia is that like a daily news story events with the tensions with azerbaijan
0: that's on everybody's mind. I don't really have a sense of the Armenian sort of media landscape.
1: Mm-hmm. There
0: isn't a good channel online that I found in Russian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from what I see, the Armenian ones are also not like really well developed, though I, I, I can can say for sure. Um but it's certainly on everybody's mind. And uh a bunch of people that I talk to here you know, they say, you said at the beginning of the conversation that uh, this might lead to a war. A bunch of people told me this will lead to a war. It's it's just a question of when. And, and they, they told me that this is what everybody thinks. And so we're just mm. waiting for the other shoe to drop. There is um, the disputed region, Artsakh, or Nagorno-Karabakh, is now under blockade from Azerbaijan. Though I don't know the, you know, that's
1: like an Armenian enclave within Azerbaijan. <sighs>
0: yeah, there is like a corridor from from Armenia proper to uh, Ratsakh, and that corridor has been blocked mm-hmm. by Azerbaijan. And uh, and I've seen, I don't have good enough resources to have a really clear picture. I I've seen most of what I see is. The blockade has been going on for more than 40 days, and there's not enough food, and uh, they cut off the gas supply and whatnot, and it's really dire. and Then I saw people like on Twitter saying, this is Armenian propaganda, and everything is fine and and uh, I, I don't trust that letter source uh, mm-hmm. I trust it less than the, than the early one, but uh, I don't have really mm-hmm. good sources.
1: Apparently there's also, uh, uh, what is the, is the term Azeri for Azerbaijanis? I mean, uh, anyway, whatever it is, there's, there's an enclave of that kind. I gather within Armenia, although maybe that is, I think maybe both of these are technically Azerbaijan's, I don't know. Anyway, I gather there's a certain kind of, uh, symmetrical situation. You have, you don't, you're not hearing much about that.
0: I don't, I don't know about that. Huh.
1: Um, so, uh. Uh, but but anyway, you, another thing I've heard is that the fact that Russia is not keeping us under control is a testament to how Russia's influence is declining as a result of it getting overextended in in Ukraine. Um, although I've also heard that. Russia needs to cozy up to Turkey, which supports Azerbaijan, it's ironic because Turkey has given some weapons to Ukraine, but Turkey is in a lot of ways providing an economic lifeline to Russia or something, and so russia so so Armenia should not expect Russia to come to its aid, even though Russia like it is the orthodox christian uh in the Orthodox Christian tradition unlike Azerbaijan, so in days of yore you might have expected more more sympathy right
0: yeah there's um, I've heard both theories it's like nominally the role of russians there is to be the peacekeeper and to just keep the two parties uh not fighting not escalating but the theory i've heard is um the reason there's there's been an escalation is putin really doesn't like the government in armenia because it's uh, a guy came to power through a revolution it's you know a story that's that's common, a uh, mm-hmm. popular uprising and, uh, and a fairly peaceful revolution, and um, a, he's more pro-Western, certainly more pro-Western than the previous guy, and and there may be a play where where Russia allows Azerbaijan to take Karabakh, and that causes uprising in armenia because there are already already protests and and uh, a lot of people see the current government as not doing enough or not doing the right thing and uh not fighting mm-hmm. properly mm-hmm. and uh if there are uprising uprisings and the uh, the current government falls apart then putin may move in or there's one senator i've heard is. All hypotheticals, just, you know, people talking about what might happen. But uh, this guy, uh, an American who has been living here for a long time has an Armenian wife and children, um, he painted the scenario to me where Putin allows Azerbaijan to take Karabakh. There are prisons here. The regime starts to fall apart. And then this is a way for Lukashenko to play his part without...
1: He's in Belar. He's in Belarus.
0: Right, this is the the leader of Belarus. Who Putin has been trying to, or at least that, that's what seems like. Putin has been trying to get more support and cooperation, um, in the war, like get Belarusian army uh, to take part. Mm -hmm. Lukashenko has been resisting that, and maybe that's an out for him. Like when shit goes down in Armenia, they can get Odakabea this union. Armenia, Kazakhstan, Belarus, Russia. Under that mm-hmm. uh, label, get Belarusian troops here to get control of this territory, and then Lukashenko can say, "I've already done my part. I don't need to uh, to be active in Ukraine." This is all, you know, conjectural. This is uh, speculations, but it's indicative of this broader view that Russia. Russia's role in uh, in between uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan is not just to keep peace. It's also to use the situation to get, gain more power in this region. So Armenia is
1: already formally part of some uh, security structure. That's a military, that's, that's some kind of security pact.
0: These are the forces. And, and is it also... When is, Russian is, forces uh, went into Kazakhstan recently, mm-hmm. it was last year, I think. I think time time has been weird lately, but um, yeah, when there was a danger of uh, an overthrow of government in Kazakhstan, mm-hmm. Russia moved in and secured the the situation, and uh, and then went back. And that was, on paper, that was not Russia. That was this security alliance um, acting on behalf of the current regime in Kazakhstan.
1: Well, this makes it kind of really weird that Russia wouldn't uh be on Armenia's side in the Azerbaijan thing cuz Azerbaijan's not part of the security structure right
0: right and a lot of Armenians are saying we should leave that uh that I you, would think yeah to...
1: i mean what's it for yeah <laughs> i mean uh wow you know i was trying to think you know i was listening to a podcast about this and uh i was uh for the first time thinking wait a second is this the way the Ukrainian war gets bigger and more out of control, like through this outlet. And it wasn't that, you know, because traditionally I've been like everybody else thinking, wait a second, it's like NATO gets involved, it becomes a you know, or nukes get involved, you know, kind of the obvious uh, forms of escalation and expansion. And 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 I started wondering about this uh as you know like you know it's like when you read like a history of any of these great wars and how they start it's Mm -hmm. not infrequently some weird thing that wasn't on the radar screen that takes it to the next level and uh but on the other hand i couldn't think of an obvious um scenario but but uh but on the other hand i can't rule i can't rule it out i don't know
0: I had the thought when Pelosi flew to Taiwan and I read that news, it was like 4 a.m. or something, I couldn't fall asleep. And I, you know, my mind was in this kind of twilight zone of half asleep, half awake. And mm-hmm. I saw the tweets or whatever about Pelosi flying to Taiwan and uh, China was doing these military exercises as a response to that. And I thought maybe the Ukrainian war is not about Ukraine at all. Maybe it's the first... You know, domino in a world war that just has many different fronts.
1: Yeah, but you you do think that Russia's point of view, Ukraine is began as being about Ukraine, or do you think that actually Putin has some grand design? Because I don't think he's in a position to execute a grand design at this point. I mean, yeah, if it yeah uh,
0: if
1: if it was part of a grand design, something went wrong because. I don't think he wants NATO to get involved in this. If, if he's smart,
0: Um yeah, I, don't, I don't know. It, it certainly, it's changed. You know, his plan, whatever it was, wasn't what's going on now. No,
1: that that's safe to yeah. say.
0: Um, and what his vision for the future? I don't know. I, I intuitively, sort of like emotionally, I do have the sense of like when COVID started. I think a lot of people felt, and Putin, one of them, felt that this is a pivotal moment in history. And and whatever you you plan to do with history, you might as well start doing it now. There's like mm. rules are are falling apart. Uh, the different approaches that you used to do, used to adhere to, are now set aside. Um. I mean, I don't know. It's it's not it's not very. I don't have like a, a coherent rational explanation of that view. But it's like, you know, there used to be this thing about protests in Russia and uh, and and whether people are allowed to gather or not, and people would argue and whatnot. And then COVID happened, and you can just say no, just no gatherings except for the ones that mm-hmm. we decide to like. A lot of things like the the order that used to be there morphed and changed and and part of it fell apart. And um, and borders closed. Mm -hmm. There was a moment when, uh, early in the pandemic when the Russian borders were not closed yet, uh, but European countries were closing them. And we were driving down uh, St. Petersburg and I think we were going like to a grocery store to stockpile food because maybe there's not going to be food and whatnot. And I had this weird feeling, I told, Uh, my wife, or then uh, girlfriend, I said, isn't it weird that a few months ago, one of the fears or concerns that we had is that Russia will go full Soviet mode and impose uh, an Iron Curtain? And that was something we, like that was one of the worst uh, developments that we could envision in the future. And now, as good liberals, we're supposed to criticize the government for not closing the border soon enough because there's mm. this disease going on and it's just mm-hmm. weird that that you're supposed like you were rooting for one uh one thing and then you're supposed to be rooting for the exact opposite just because it's in a different framework different context different narrative
1: yeah the uh it's uh, I mean, there's a version of this in America, of course. People, uh, well, on, maybe on the far right end, maybe on the right hand and the left who think that you know, I mean, the extreme version is the is the pandemic version, right, where this is all a hoax designed to get, uh, you know, to expand state power. Uh, the more moderate, relatively moderate version of it is that the state is is really actively exploiting the situation to. But you get this, you get this here, too. Um, the uh, I, I wanted to ask you about this, uh, this conversation I had with Ivan Kachanovsky. I haven't talked to you about it at all. I know you, you had a chance to take a look at it. So he's this Ukrainian guy. And I should say, I'm we're taping this the day after it went public. Uh, so I haven't fully assimilated the blowback that I think I'm, <laughs> I'm likely to get for it Uh there are a lot of dimensions of it and but 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 uh you know he's a guy who grew up in Ukraine has uh, a thick ukrainian accent to show for it uh came to america studied uh, under actually a very eminent american political scientist named uh, Seymour Martin Lipset I, I don't know if that was his uh, advisor but they collaborated on published work um and uh and, and so yeah now he's at the university of ottawa uh and he, uh, well, definitely provides a distinctive perspective that's different from what you're getting in mainstream media. The most controversial thing he says is that uh, on the, during the Maidan Revolution, most of the protesters were shot by snipers from these far right groups that were, you know, allied with the protesters for purposes of, of, of you know, causing trouble for the go- uh, of protesting the government's policies. And and maybe uh, and certainly in the case of the far right groups wanting to overthrow the government and 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 probably that was a lot of the more liberal protesters were fine with that as well. But anyway, he's saying that the the more extreme elements of the coalition, uh, uh, the anti-government coalition actually were part of a false flag operation. And, you know, I, I I don't. I don't casually bring on somebody who has a theory that's going to get a lot of blowback and if you want I can talk about uh how I I thought about uh you know doing that uh the propriety of doing that but uh but I'm mainly curious about about your take as a as a Russian who knows something about Ukraine um uh he he has a number of interesting things to say the rest of them less controversial than that but but some of them certainly not mainstream um what was your what was your reaction
0: it was difficult to listen to um i don't know if he's right or wrong i i think i agree with you you said uh in that conversation that you may be right you may be wrong but it certainly seems like there should be a. a something that a number of Western publications really try to properly investigate and, and mm-hmm. write their definitive take on it. And we're not seeing that. Um, I mean,
1: we've seen a little of, there. there is a New York Times video assessment that he talked about and was dismissive of. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, my sense is, I mean, my sense of the Western media's coverage of the whole war mm-hmm. is that, you know, we think of ourselves as being on one side and you get the kind of coverage you get when that's the case. Uh, right. It is it it's not unusual. This is the way information processing works during wars. Um, but I, I certainly wouldn't expect his thesis to get a lot of vigorous investigation uh, from Western media. Now, you're, you're saying that particular part of the conversation was difficult. Uh... The
0: entire conversation was difficult for me for like personal reasons, because. Like you're, I'm sure you're going to get some comments for that conversation calling you a Putin apologist as.
1: Oh, uh, I already, I already get that. But uh, for, for much more saying, you know, much uh, more main closer to the mainstream things. But yeah, that, that, uh, I I mean, if you even say that you think NATO expansion made this war more likely, you get that, but, but go ahead.
0: Sure. And it's not, you know, I agree with you that this is not a, usually this is not a very, um, Substantiated and and and, and rigorous, uh, you know, critique of you're just trying to figure out what happened. But listening to that conversation, I felt like a Putin apologist, like I was criticizing kind of myself. There was a voice in inside my head being kind of annoyed with me, even you know trying to learn these details and 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 think. So about... what you mean you felt?
1: Wait, now I'm confused. You you you. Uh... It sounds like, like there's a complicated network of voices in your head. What what yeah. what which one is the Putin apologist? Well,
0: it, well, it's like you can look at many, many different causal chains that led to the war and you can point to different parts of the Ukrainian uh political landscape as problematic, you know, it, it it's not like it used to be this beautifully functioned democracy with strong institutions and then Russia rolled in. And you can talk about whatever the nationalist or neo-Nazi roots of the Azov battalion or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And and all of those things, like if you're a social scientist or a historian or a journalist uh, studying this, you need to be looking at these things and need to be uh, figuring it out. Mm -hmm. But I, as a private person, Listening to that conversation felt whatever the details are, we're still in a war that didn't have to happen. And mm-hmm. and it's Russia who invaded the country, and it's Russia who's bombing these cities, and there are people who die or lose homes, or, and, uh, you know, civil infrastructure is destroyed, and uh, and whatever the situation was in ukraine before that um it, it doesn't excuse this it doesn't and so and, and i understand yeah. when you're having this conversation you're not excusing the invasion and i don't think he is mm-hmm.
1: i um, don't think he is
0: yeah but but it is difficult to listen to because it for me yeah. because because no, it's,
1: he, it's it's a visceral reaction yeah and that's what's interesting to me i mean i will say uh you know, I was happy to hear him kind of. Well, for example, with with a neo-Nazi thing,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: he 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 noted the fact that there that these some like the Azov Brigade has neo-Nazi roots, whatever. And I said, so that's what Putin is is referring to when he talks about like denazification. And, and uh, Kachanovsky said, "Yeah, but, 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 but that's Putin propaganda." Because right. the fact is, there is not a strong, not, neo-Nazi element within the government. So that's just yeah. propaganda. There were and several the times the nazi
0: element within the Russian uh, military, and and I mean, depending on how you define neo-Nazi, right. you can say that the entire rhetoric of the Russian propaganda machine is is
1: yeah. Well, is, it's like when you're when you're smashing people's heads with sledge yeah. and sledgehammers and circulating the videos. What does it matter whether you call yourself a Nazi? I mean, th- yes. this is this is the kind of thing that uh, you know. It's it's in that realm in term of in terms and of badness. But,
0: but the guy Rogozin, I, I forget what his position is now. He did play a part in the war. He went to the Donbass as some kind of a government representative. And before that, he was the head of Roscosmos, the uh space agency. And there's video of him as a younger man doing the the Zig uh, salute.
1: And this is who? This
0: is This is Ragozin. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Russian. There's So, and, and if you're talking about, you know, there are photos of uh, some member of the Azov battalion and, and you see like a military patch or something with a uh, Nazi, mm-hmm. there's that on the Russian side too. And I think mm-hmm. you I forget the name of the woman you talked to. I think she's French and mm-hmm. she mm-hmm. Um, uh, studied Russian. i I thought she she had a very like comprehensive view and of of the russian politics and russian society and she made the point is uh in these mercenary situations you know Mm -hmm. volunteer military groups you're just going to get some Mm neo-nazi like that's Mm -hmm. the the two are aligned on in in some way there is you know if if you're the kind Mm -hmm. of person who looks for an enemy to fight against and the camaraderie of your brethren fighting the good war and whatnot, there's going to be a portion, uh, you know, the, that appeal, the appeal of, of neo-Nazi ideology shares some qualities with the appeal of the life of a warrior.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So and, you know, I mean... people there.
1: The thing about Kanchanowski is, he struck me as the kind of person who would be happy to point all that out. I mean, there were a number I think of he, times
0: I think when so. he,
1: like, for example, I mean, one of my, you know, uh, you know, this this uh, shady seeming conversation with Victoria Newland. Uh, the people are probably familiar with where it sounds like she's plotting with uh, the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine about who's. Uh, gonna gonna run the government once we uh get rid of Yanukovych, the Ukrainian president. And he he emphasized that actually that's not the context of that conversation. The the context of that conversation is uh that there was at that point going to be a deal where Yanukovych accepted a new leader of parliament. He remained president, and they were talking about who the leader of parliament should be. Now, I personally am still uncomfortable with my government. More or less selecting the person. Okay. I don't like that degree of American involvement. Still, that's an important distinction. And it hadn't been entirely clear to me until uh until pretty recently. I mean, I started picking up on that before this conversation. But anyway, the point is he strikes me as somebody who's interested in the truth. Uh, and and I, I know exactly what you mean when you say, but it kind of rubs me the wrong way emotionally and i think because because of the way in human psychology uh it, it, you know assigning causal responsibility for things talking about how american actions or ukrainian actions or whatever might have made war more likely tends to be intertwined in human psychology with assigning blame um yeah. for that reason It it can be kind of painful to hear this stuff, but uh, leaving aside the question of whether it's right or wrong, um, it it can just be painful to hear and you feel yourself fighting it. I just feel we have to get over that. It's like a threshold our species has to cross if we're ever going to reach a time when there is no war, however painful it is. I mean, separate from that, I think uh, uh, American foreign policy... The American foreign policy establishment needs to reckon with things in American foreign policy that have been ill-advised, and it's not doing that. And one reason it's not doing that is precisely because during wartime, the psychology sets in, it's almost painful to think about clearly. But for that reason, I think we have to uh, think about it clearly. And I think one thing that involves is uh, giving an opportunity to people like Kachinowski, who seem to be people of good faith to uh trot out even controversial theories that may be wrong i haven 't looked into the into the false flag theory uh enough to know who 's right and who's wrong. I did do enough due diligence to be confident that there has not been uh, a definitive analysis, and right. in fact, one thing I did is go to the the uh, I found a piece. Put out by the Atlantic Council, which is sometimes referred to as NATO's think tank, cynically. Maybe it doesn't deserve that, but certainly, you know, it gets money from Western governments and so on. And they are, you know, on the side of, you know, kind of the conventional American uh, foreign policy establishment side. And there was a piece there kind of complaining that Zelensky, that the Ukrainian government still hasn't done a definitive investigation that gets to the bottom of this. And, uh, so, oh, and you know, and I looked around, and uh, you know, all I think is that uh, there is enough uncertainty about what happened that day. Still, so far as I can tell, that uh, people with uh, conflicting theories should be allowed to have their day in court, and it's it, it the fact that it's uncomfortable now during a war is. To my mind, all the more reason you have to give these people a stage, okay. uh, you know, a, a pedestal.
0: I think uh, I would have been less uncomfortable if I was not Russian. Hmm. Like, because a part of this uncomfortableness comes from, you're right, so maybe something, you know, that there, you can critique the American approach. Maybe, Maybe America contributed to this you can critique the uh, approach of the Ukrainian government and and maybe they contributed to this. But surely Russia is the force that that made the biggest contribution, right? And so for me to focus, to look into, to spend time looking into these other areas feels like, uh, you know, one, one reason a Russian might do that is because they don't want to look at their own country's fault in this. Mm -hmm. And I think if I was American or Ukrainian, I would, I I think it would be, uh, I would feel better about trying to look into my own backyard and, and, and trying to figure out, you know, what feels like, you know, closer to my responsibility, though, the question of responsibility of an individual or a private person is also a complicated one. Like, I don't know, what I should have done differently. Like I you know, I wasn't at those meetings, I wasn't at any table. Uh mm. what what was I supposed to do for this to not happen? Or what am I supposed to do doing now? This is this is a more important question and I don't have mm-hmm. an answer to that either. And so I think there's another part of it like you sometimes feel this. When you started looking at stuff you or you end up in some conversation where it's you're trying to analyze different parts of it and it starts to feel like you're is this your pastime now like this is not consequential this you're not uh, after this conversation, you're not gonna go and do something about it because you don't know what to do mm-hmm. uh, and, and so even even having these conversations sometimes feel you feel icky because there you know there are people dying and you're not doing anything about that, and instead you're talking about it um yeah it's it's just a human thing i'm I'm not i'm not saying this is you know wrong it, it we all would, would benefit yeah from from understanding the situation better and in, in a more comprehensive way but but there is this shitty feeling um uh, yeah when you're when you're you feel powerless and 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 so instead of exerting some kind of influence you're just talking about stuff
1: yeah no um, uh i know what you mean um and you know we're all i i mean i i i think of having people like him on the show as being a way of trying to do something about the generic problem uh of war more than about this particular right. war at this point but you know kind of just insisting that at some point we quit getting sucked into this this uh the psychology that makes people so uncomfortable uh with uh with even hearing uh alternative views on things like this you know and i, and I should say you know there was uh after uh first this was made available to paid subscribers to the non-zero newsletter uh before it was, went public which was yesterday And uh, uh, one of our commenters, a paid subscriber to the newsletter, said he was there. uh, Kachanovsky is wrong. Uh, He was there on the Maidan uh, uh, judging uh, uh, by his. uh, Anyway, I I won't get into I mean, by his email address, he 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 could be Estonian. He may he may be a journalist. So it's somebody sound like somebody should be taken very seriously uh obviously this uh kind of filled me you know like 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 fear like did i miss something obvious Uh is this theory so crazy that it shouldn't even get a public hearing right but when i looked at what he said i sent it i sent you know what he said to kachanovsky he replied commenter elaborated kachanovsky replied to elaboration and i'm back to feeling like uh no, it 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 isn't yeah, I have not seen evidence that it was just a that this is just some kind of crazy theory that doesn't deserve uh uh any airtime at all. Uh but you know, uh, night is young. We'll see what else uh comes out and whether uh uh you know, people bring evidence uh, to bear that uh that proves them wrong or something. If if it does, I'll try to I'll try to be uh, uh forthright about it. Um
0: what if he so, the consequence of of that what's that what if uh Kachanovsky is right? what is the consequence of that like how does that change the way we relate to this war now
1: uh I mean, as I said, I think of uh bringing I think the answer is probably not much and it probably shouldn't. I mean, my view is Russia violated international law by invading a, a sovereign country. I take international law very seriously, so you want Russia not to be rewarded for this. Um at the uh, that takes care of that. Uh at the same time, um I think it's important to look at Uh, things in american foreign policy that made this whole mess more likely than i think it had to be Uh, even though we are not the ones who violated international law and and then again more generically i just think we have to try to uh you know there needs to be a kind of evolution of human psychology in a certain sense Mm
0: -hmm.
1: that uh this is this is this is something I probably shouldn't even talk about without thinking it through more clearly, but 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 uh uh the sense in which I just think we need to uh resist the kind of football game mentality, even during war, if that makes sense. Right. I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I think as long as we succumb to that, and as long as every time there's a war, anyone who tries to complicate the narrative. Is is deemed an apologist for the other side and expelled from polite discourse. I think as long as that dynamic is in play, we will not get to a world without wars. And we really have to do that. Not just because wars are bad, but because more and more there are these global problems uh, that we need to solve together. And they I think they go well beyond climate change uh and uh have to do with various kinds of weapons of mass destruction and other things. And so. Uh that's my view but I agree that like at this point this thing is just in motion this mm-hmm. war mm-hmm. and and it would be bad uh if 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 Putin wound up with positive reinforcement like mm-hmm. uh uh you know at the same time I don't think it's realistic to expel uh Russia entirely from you know all land they've taken including Crimea and so on so it's a very complicated situation but uh I don't know. Um, anything else you want to say about anything?
0: Um, well, a stray thought on the on the nationalist involvement in Ukraine. I don't, I, I don't know if that's uh, pertinent, but uh, it comes up in my mind every once in a while. Like I remember when. Before the war, when Maidan happened, and people were talking about the nationalist involvement as like a bad sign uh, in in uh, the situation in Ukraine, my thought—you mean
1: the 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 kind of uh, far right nationalists in yeah, Ukraine? Yeah, well, just
0: just yeah. the fact that there were these, you know, the the right sector and 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 all mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And I. Uh, and I sometimes thought, well, maybe this is the reason they managed to to accomplish what they accomplished, because the nationalists, they tend to be more organized and more militant and, and more, you know, willing to take risks and whatnot. And I remember in the history of the Russian protest movement, there was this time, you know, end of 2011 to, you can draw the line in different places, but say, until 2014 with the annexation of Crimea. Maybe a little earlier than that, it ended. But there was a time where there was was this anti-Putin, pro-democracy movement that included everybody from all sides of the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was at these protests. And I don't like nationalists. I don't like, certainly not, you know, neo-Nazi types. But they had a function, uh, because these liberals, they they don't know how to, you know, secure the perimeter and be and, and put people on different, mm-hmm. different positions to watch which direction the right police mm-hmm. is going to come from and organize people uh, in a kind of tactical uh, sense on the street. Um, in Russia, I, <laughs> I went... I went to America after uh, some of these protests in Russia that I t- was part of, and then I attended, kind of as an observer, uh, one of the BLM rallies. And I was thinking, God damn, these people know how to chant. Russians <laughs> at these protests is just, you know, I want to chant. I want to to uh, you know get on the same page and express our uh, mm-hmm. opinion boldly and whatnot. It just doesn't work because, you know, in America, it's like, I don't know, there ain't no power, but the power of the people and the power of the people don't stop. And then the other guy goes, say what? And the crowd, you know, yeah, yeah. there is a written to it and and it picks up the spirit of the protesters. And in Russia, it's like, свободu <laughs> and, and nobody chants it. And if you yeah. do, you feel weird. Nationalists, on the other hand, a lot of them are football fans. A lot of them know how to chant shit. Um, yeah. So anyway, so there at the time in Russia, I felt that their participation yeah had a function, mm-hmm. and and apart from that, I mean, if what you are after is a system of uh, you know, how governments change and there's going to be an election and then whoever wins that election is going to be the president, not the guy you like, but whoever right. gets the most votes. Well, there is a nationalist attitude within the Russian society. These people should also be represented and I think they wouldn't, just like in Ukraine, the the were these far-right groups that were a part of the Maidan. They were not, Numerous. They didn't get like their party to. Uh, I, I think the the biggest numbers they got were single digits. Mm-hmm. They didn't have mass support, but but they should get whatever representation that they.
1: Uh, well, yeah, but that's different from saying that their use of violence, sure, uh, sure. is legit. Uh, and and there's no doubt that there was some degree of use of violence by the far sure. right uh, in that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the other thing I would say is like, yeah, it might not have worked without the nationalists, but it's far from clear, uh, clear to me that the overthrow of Yanukovych in Ukraine was a good thing in retrospect. I mean, it was it was it was an overthrow. He fled right. for for fear of his life. He right. was democratically elected. It was a non-democratic uh, transition. It's funny. I saw the Wall Street Journal in a reported piece, not not an opinion piece, refer to it as a democratic revolution. And I was wondering, like, what? How do we know? I mean, uh maybe there were polls afterwards that showed that most Ukrainian people supported it, and that's what they mean. I guess that's that's kind of legit, but in any event, the, the consequences of the Yanukovych overthrow are uh seem to me, uh, to in retrospect, uh not have been entirely benign. But I take your point. Uh, I mean, first of all, any mass movement is a coalition almost of different uh, entities. And for better or worse, nationalist spirit uh, is sometimes critical. I mean, uh, Navalny is more of a nationalist than some people realize, although not a not a neo-Nazi nationalist, but a little bit more of a nationalist than some people realize. Um, so anyway, that's uh, it's all complicated. Um, I don't know if there's anything else we want to say about that. We should say about you that that uh, you put out the Psychopolitica newsletter. Mm-hmm uh and on substack and people can uh
0: subscribe to that uh and we donated 3200 dollars last year to buy humanitarian aid for ukraine from really? subscriptions uh at psychopolitica
1: that's great and uh this is not like the steve bannon uh build the wall operation in other words, the money donated actually went to where you say it went to.
0: Well, I donated it to a fund that I heard is legit. But. Okay. <laughs> as
1: long as you didn't buy a yacht with it or whatever, yeah. whatever Bannon did with that money. Um and uh you're on Twitter at
0: Nitita what's your Twitter? Name? Petrov.
1: Yeah. Okay. And I am at Robert Ryder on Twitter. And uh and thanks for taking the time sure uh we'll we'll uh we'll we'll probably check in down the road sounds good uh all right see you around